Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll give them a call. Here's the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be talking about his column, The Iron Fist in a Velvet Glove. And Peter Wood, author of Wrath, American Rage, will be with us as well. It is October the 18th, and on this day in 1867, the United States formally took possession of Alaska after purchasing the territory from Russia for $7.2 million, or less than $0.02 cents an acre. The Alaska Purchase comprised 586,412 square miles, about twice the size of Texas, and was championed by William Henry Seward, the enthusiastically expansionist Secretary of State under President Andrew Johnson. Russia wanted to sell its Alaska territory, which was remote, sparsely populated, and difficult to defend. The U.S., rather than risking losing it in a battle with a rival such as Great Britain, negotiations between Seward and the Russian minister to the United States began in March of 1867. However, the American public believed the land to be barren and worthless and dubbed the purchase Seward's Folly and Andrew Johnson's Polar Bear Garden, among other derogatory names. Some animosity towards the project may have been a byproduct of President Johnson's own unpopularity. As the 17th U.S. President, Johnson battled with radical Republicans in Congress over Reconstruction policies following the Civil War. He was impeached in 1868 and later acquitted by a single vote. Nevertheless, Congress eventually ratified the Alaska deal. Public opinion of the purchase soon turned more favorable when gold was discovered in a tributary of Alaska's Klondike River in 1896, sparking a gold rush. Alaska became the 49th state of the, on January the 3rd, 1959, and is now recognized for its vast natural resources. Today, 25% of America's oil and over 50% of its seafood comes from Alaska. Did you know that? Over 50% of the seafood. It's also the largest state in the area, about one-fifth the size of the lower 48 states combined, although it remains sparsely populated. The name Alaska is derived from the Aleut word Ayaska, which means great land. Alaska, 1867. <clears throat> well, Miami State uh, Senator Annette Tadeo is expected to jump into the Democratic race for Governor Monday and joining a pair of prominent contenders with a head start on efforts to unseat President or Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Tadeo plans to file her candidacy papers in Tallahassee, a punctuation mark to a summer and early fall spent in private meetings with fellow Democrats and fundraisers. U.S. Representative Charlie Crist of St. Petersburg and State Agricultural Commissioner Nikki Fried announced their candidacies in May and June, respectively, and have been campaigning heavily ever since. Tadeo, who's 54, was first elected to the Senate in 2017. She also was Chris's running mate three years earlier when he failed to stop now U.S. Senator Rick Scott from winning a second term as governor. Kristen Freed, although, although so far haven't sparked overwhelming enthusiasm among former Democrats or Florida Democrats, while DeSantis is sitting on more than $58 million of cash in his campaign, Freed has about $3 million and Chris about $2.8 million. Uh, among Democrats, today is far back of even those modest numbers. She has about $300,000 in the bank. Similarly, recasting the uh, Miami-Dade lawmaker as a statewide candidate also will be a challenge. She's not been headline-grabbing as a state senator, but as a reliable advocate for schools, the environment, working-class Floridians, not that different from other Florida Democrats. <clears throat> well, that's good. Right now, DeSantis is the overwhelming favorite to become governor again. And uh, Freed, of course, has already been tied up in her underwear in her campaign and had some other things going on. So Chris served as governor. He decided he didn't want to be governor anymore. He only served one term. And uh, that's when uh, Rep 
Rick Scott won as our governor. Well, Florida uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has been a left's favorite targets, especially amid the ongoing COVID-19 saga. Democrats and activist media have pilloried the governor for refusing to enact the same type of onerous and draconian restrictions that other states have imposed on their residents. They claimed he was responsible for getting Floridians killed while paying very little attention to Florida New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Cuomo, who actually did get people killed through this COVID policy. However, the latest data shows that DeSantis' approach to the pandemic isn't as deadly as the far left had hoped and argued. Although a chart published by the New York Times showed its rate of COVID-19 infections is far lower than even the states that have embraced mask and vaccine mandates and other measures. The chart shows that Florida's 14 rate of COVID case dropped to by 48%. Sunshine State's case per uh, 100,000 is 13. That means that Florida has the third lowest rate of infections last week, coming in just behind Connecticut and Hawaii, which both have 11 cases per 100,000. According to Click Orlando, this is the fifth week in which cases have declined. Uh, There's also a report that the states reported 2,505 new cases of COVID-19 makes the seven-day average below 3,000 cases for the first time since July the 7th, and that is the positivity rate has been declining since mid-August. During the summer months, COVID rates and hospitalizations surged in Florida. Uh, Democrats took this as an opportunity to attack DeSantis. However, rates also rose in every, every other state as well. While addressing an audience in August, DeSantis said, <clears throat> what we're going to see is that you already started to see, but because you don't have the herd immunity through the vaccination, vaccinations, you're going to see uh, winter and fall waves in the northern states. We have a summer season, but you're not going to see that. And so I think that there's something that should be stressed more than more. Uh, in September, the governor announced that he obtained more COVID doses of uh, monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID patients, despite the fact that President Joe Biden has cut the supply in Florida. We should be doing everything we can to get patients monoclonal antibody treatments, not cutting allocations or treating like Biden's administration has done, he said. Many viewed the president's actions as being politically motivated. High-profile leftists have downplayed the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies, along with every other potential remedy, like uh, well, you name it, This that is not a vaccine. They're pushing the vaccines. Florida's COVID rate has fluctuated just like most other states, but despite the left's claims that DeSantis' refusal to enact strict measures ostensibly to combat the spread of the virus, it seems clear that it's not had a drastic impact on the numbers compared to other states. He's made great decisions. It's just very pleased that our state is open for business. Some states are not. And uh, I think our governor has made great decisions with regard to this quote-unquote pandemic. By the way, Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian announced Thursday that his company will not enforce a vaccine mandate for the airline employees. It was previously reported back on August 25th that the airline was slated to impose a surcharge on its unvaccinated employees due to the extra potential health risks for them. Due to uh, an interview uh, claiming countdown on Fox News, the Delta Airlines executive initially irritated, I should say, iterated that without the necessity of a vaccine mandate, the company has already achieved a 90% rate of vaccination among its employees and expected the number to top 95% within a month or so. The reason the mandate was put in by the president, I believe, was because they wanted to make sure the companies have a plan to get the employees vaccinated. A month before the president came out with the mandate, we already had announced our plan to get all employees and uh, people vaccinated. And the good news is the plan is working. Uh, By the time we're done, we'll be pretty close to fully vaccinated as a company without going through all the divisiveness of a mandate, he said. We're proving that you can work collaboratively with your people, trusting your people to make a right decision, respecting the decisions and not forcing them over the loss of their jobs, Bastian said. Well, so Delta making a good decision not to enforce the mandate. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Washington, D.C.-based Liberty Council is filing a class action lawsuit against President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Lloyd Austin, and Secretary of Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas on behalf of members of his five branches of military as well as the federal employees and civ- civilian contractors. The plaintiffs claim that they've been unlawfully ordered to get 
the COVID-19 shots or face dishonorable discharge or termination from employment. The military claimants also include two Navy SEALs, a Navy EOD officer, a Navy senior off petty officer, a Navy chaplain, two Marine lieutenant colonels, two Marine lance corporals, an Air Force major, an Air Force tactical sergeant, an Army National Guardsman, and an Army colonel and Coast Guard lieutenant. Non-military plaintiffs include a Department of Defense contractor, a federal civilian engineer, a federal civilian contract employer, a federal nuclear contractor, and a Department of Energy civilian uh, nuclear tech. So this is all good news. Um, My hope is, in fact, that they'll rein this, uh, in my opinion, this is a clear breach of our First Amendment rights, our medical privacy, and he has no right to do that. doesn't have the influence, unfortunately, to convince us to do it for those 66 million that haven't been vaccinated. So hopefully the courts will prevail and we will go back to having freedom, irrespective of what Joe Biden wants to do with uh, the mandates. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show and the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can get tickets now by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, going to be visiting with Peter Wood, author of Wrath, America, Enraged. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a HistoryCentral.com. It's a multimedia website. Good for kids of all ages. I encourage you to visit HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So we're going to be talking about current global events, and let's start off with what's going on in China. So in China, there are actually three different stories that we should be following, maybe even four. So number one, the economic story. The Chinese economy has grown slower than it has recently at 4.8%. We might be happy with that number, but for China... 
that's used to numbers around 9 or 10%, that's a bit of a problem. Second of all, there's a continuing problem with their uh, real estate sector, yeah. uh, where their largest real estate company has not made its bond payments, and I think we've discussed before there's something between 20 and 30 million empty residences in China that have been built and there's no one to live in them. Wow. So that's a combination of demographics and changing, all sorts of different changes that are taking place in China. So as we get to the sec second two stories, we should understand the fact that China might not be as strong as some people think. Yeah. There's some strong underlying weakness. The other side of the coin is a the continued um, actions vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and the growing concern that the Chinese might actually um, think of invading Taiwan, yeah. uh, which is something to be concerned about. Uh, the United States has made it clear that we uh, we will defend Taiwan. They made it very, we made it very clear recently, and of course, the more the Chinese think we will defend them, the less chance they'll attack. So that's always one of those difficult issues. And finally, there was a test this past week of a new Chinese missile. There have been various reports at this point. In other words, the initial reports were there was a hypersonic missile that went around the world and then landed. As, in other words, they could fire a missile at any point, go around the world and hit any target. The Chinese are claiming that it was really actually a test of a new space vehicle. I don't know which is true, obviously. Mm. But one thing I think we need to know and we need to understand is the lethargy that American defense industries have shown in the last 30 years as we allowed them to merge, and so we only have like two two companies that make airframes, is very problematic at this point. Uh -huh. The Chinese are moving faster. They're stealing our designs and they're building on them. And we can't, we need to rethink um, everything we're doing in terms of defense. It just takes way too long. You know, you think about the fact that, uh, you know, during World War II, um, President Roosevelt announced, you know, we do 70,000 aircraft a year, and guess what? By the second year, we're doing 70,000 aircraft. Yeah. Um, at this point, we can barely turn out 20 or 30 F-35s in, in six months. Yeah. So, so interesting. There needs to be a total rethinking, and I think you know one of the one of the great mistakes I think that's taken place in the last twenty thirty years was encouraging all these defense manufacturers to merge. Mm -hmm. And whether we encourage them or the lobbyists encouraged it, or who knows what what the story is. But the bottom line is there. You know, look at the, the best example is look how SpaceX has run rings around Boeing when it comes to space. Yeah. Amazing. So, so uh, yep. not to diminish the other parts of the story, but uh, this uh, Evergrande, I think, I guess is the name of the uh, company that's uh, carrying all the paper that's not uh, going to be able to make its uh, payments on its interest. Is this going to splash around the world economy? Is uh, have we seen everything that that's going to happen from this? We don't know. I mean, I understand that some of the paper is owned by Western companies, etc. So there certainly can be an impact. Uh, in all sorts of different ways. I don't think it's large enough uh, to take down economies in other parts of the world in a serious way, but of course a drag on the Chinese economy. You know, we have this we have this very love-hate relationship with China, right? Mm -hmm. We need to understand that. We hate the Chinese in the sense of their, you know, they may be taking our lunch, competing so well, doing such a good job in competition. On the other hand, we love the Chinese because they produce goods at a lower price and therefore allow us to buy things cheaper. We love the Chinese because they're the largest potential consumer marketplace. So iPhone sales are high when the Chinese buy iPhones. Um, so it's it's complicated. People need to understand that. There's no black and white here. Um, and um, so therefore, stability is what we really want more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's easy also to just paint them as a, as an enemy, stealing our stuff. They're stealing our our, our IP. Uh, you know, they literally are uh, want to dominate the world. It looks to me like it looks, but not necessarily through well, conventional Well, that's worship. an interesting question though, because we've never seen any. There's never been any Chinese ambition beyond China, really. Whatever they define as China, they think Taiwan is part of China. Well, how about all so the, the is, how about the Silk Road initiatives and how all the uh, money that they're well, that, 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 that was for economic development. They want to make more money by and that was the Silk Road to 
increase their markets, obviously. Is that about Which money? Or is, by the way, the Silk Road is not working out very well for them. I know, but is, is that initiative, is it about money or is it about power and influence? It's very hard to separate the two, you know. Yeah. That's one of the problems, right? Yeah. You want power and influence so you can make money. What, what's the point of power, ultimately, other than to make money for most, most people? Yeah. So it, it's, a compl- it's complicated. There's no ideology. There's no attempt to turn you know, Africa into to communism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, China is, is nominally called communist China, but there's very little that connects their economy with, with true communism at all. Right. It's the name of the party. The party has doesn't have a lot to do with the communist with the uh, Chinese people, right? Look, the only communism in the world that seems to exist right now <clears throat> is North Korea, probably in total, and Cuba partially. Nowhere else in the world is there communism, mm. and no place has there ever been Marxist communism. Yeah. So, and there isn't even very much socialism in the world, believe it or not. But that's a different story. By true socialism, I don't mean. You know what we call socialists. Uh, we're giving it a heck of a try, though, Mark. <laughs> what? We're giving it a heck of a try, though. So let's. Well, it depends. Remember something: socialism. The definition of socialism is government control of the major means of uh, of production. Yeah. As opposed to communism, where the government owns everything. Yeah. So, nowhere is in the world right now do we see any movement for governments to gain control of companies, of banks, and everything else like that. Uh, the only question is how big the social net is everywhere in the world. Yeah. But that's not socialism, that's something else, whatever yeah. you want to call it. It's not socialism by economic theory. Yeah. So let's move to uh, Iraq and what's going on there. So Iraq turns out to be, strangely enough, <clears throat> the, the, the success that we didn't have in Afghanistan in a certain way. Uh, they had elections, this is their fourth elections, they were relatively peaceful. Yes, only 49% of the people participated, but you know that's a different issue altogether. The people who lost the most were the Iranians. The Iranian-backed militia parties lost considerable control. Mm. Any of the parties that were tied to any militias lost seats. Um, the Sunnis actually got a nice block of seats, which will give them additional power in the country, which is good for, for balancing. The Kurds, of course, I think had the largest number, but that can't create a majority. And so there's you know, going to be coalition negotiations taking place to develop a uh, government but again, look, this is the fourth peaceful election, transfer of power, uh, which will take place. Um, that's a success. Yeah. You know, it may, not have be, it may not have turned into, I don't know, Switzerland or who knows what, but it's, an, it's a success. Elections are taking place and consistently taking place in Iraq. Yeah. So despite all the other issues, and there are plenty, mind you, and um, there are plenty of issues of strengthening Iran by destroying Iraq and all those things, but in terms of wanting to create some form of democracy. We totally failed in Afghanistan, and we seem to have more or less succeeded in Iraq. Not, not a perfect democracy, but certainly some version therein. So how is Iran responding to the elections and to what's happening in Iraq? Well, the Iranian militias are claiming they, can't, they won't accept the results, they're fake, etc., etc., but there's very little they can do. I mean, the interesting part is Bani Sadr, who led the militias that were the most... Um, opposed us, and he's a Shiite, he's also very strongly an Iraqi national, and he opposes Iranian influence on the country, mm. despite being a Shiite. Um, and he's probably the, the single biggest winner in the elections. And so while he's no friend of the United States, although I don't think he cares about us once we're out, you know, he didn't, he was no friend of us once we were occupying Iraq, let's put it that way. Mm. He's also no friend of the Iranians. So I think this election uh, basically weakens the Iranians, without a question, yeah, obviously in Iraq directly and maybe in other places as well. So, I mean, if we switch over to Lebanon, because it's related, um, you know, their Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy to a very large extent, has brought the country to, to total chaos and totally um, falling apart. And what happened on last Friday Right now, there is an investigation. I don't know if anyone remembers, but a year ago, there was a tremendous explosion sure. in the port of Beirut that killed hundreds of people, wounded 1,700, and destroyed the whole area of the port. And there's been an investigation going on as to who is responsible. And the independent investigator is taking is not taking no from an answer from anybody. The general suspicion was that the chemicals were being stored there by 
Hezbollah, and they don't want that information to come out and them to receive the blame. Uh, but they were demonst- they were holding a demonstration demanding that the independent investigator be removed from the job, and then they started uh, demonstrating in the Christian neighborhood. Shots rang out, nine people were killed, including all sorts of innocent bystanders. So, you know, there's a chance Lebanon, which has no power, which money has become worthless, which has no economy at this point, could also easily spiral into some sort of civil war again. Yeah, and uh, so, but is there a chance that Hezbollah will lose its grip on Lebanon? It could. I mean, the question is, look, it's the strongest force militarily, so it's going to be hard to displace them. Uh-huh. I think they've already lost, you know, at some point they were accepted by the Lebanese people as, you know, we had helped push out the Israelis, um, we believe in Lebanese independence and all those sort of things, and at some point they had significant support. But I believe that support has been weakened greatly, and certainly anybody who's in power right now is not very popular in Lebanon. The situation is really quite dire mm. in terms of what happened to an economy that was pretty much a Western economy that now is in total sh- totally shattered. Uh, scary stuff. So let's uh, let's move to Poland. So Poland's an interesting case. So you have a, a very far right wing government in Poland that basically wins the elections by 50 point, you know, point one percent just barely gets a majority, gets all its support from, from rural and older, older voters, while the other parties who get support from urban centers and young people. And the um, party in power has been trying to weaken everything else but themselves. In other words, they want to, um, they're basically trying to gain control on a semi-permanent basis of Poland, and they're also very much against abortions and all sorts of other things that don't, you know, very illiberal from the views of the people who live in them, the major cities. But more recently, they've been in conflict with the EU, because being a member of the EU, you have to follow certain rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened this past week was a lower court passed a verdict on a particular rule and said the government does not have to follow the EU rules. Um, and the result, but keep in mind the fact, one thing that's not the case, Poland is not Great Britain, 90% of, of Poles want to be part of the EU. Mm-hmm. A, they get a tremendous amount of money from the EU, uh, and B, Poles like the idea of being able to travel freely throughout Europe. Now, you know, it doesn't make a difference whether you're rural Poland, Polish, or you live in Warsaw or Krakow. That's a really plus, big plus for them. So most of the country is in favor of the EU, um, but the government doesn't want any doesn't want its hands tied at all. And what ended up happening this past weekend is massive demonstrations in almost all the cities in Poland uh, on behalf of the EU and saying we don't you know we want our laws to conform to the rules of the EU because we want to be part of the EU. Huh. So it's an interesting situation um, and main, in the main, meantime this the party of the ruling party has maintained its control and we'll see how that works out. Didn't I read something about Poland uh, trying to strengthen its borders and uh, eliminate or, or stop the flow of uh, immigrants coming into Poland? Well, from Belarus. There, uh, there's a different story here. Remember, Belarus is this last country with a basically communist dictator in control. And, of course, there's been demonstrations, and they've been unsuccessful in trying to oust him. He's... he's uh, He's the one also who downed the civilian plane that was flying over Belarus, wasn't planning to stop, down, made the plane land, and took uh, one of the people who was criticizing his government off the plane and put him in jail. Mm. So this is a really bad guy. And, of course, in a situation like that, people want to flee. And Belarus has a big border with Poland, and Poland is trying to limit the number of refugees coming into its country from Belarus. As I recall, did I read that they're building a wall, in fact? They're building a border, a border fence. A border yes. fence, okay. All right, so... Uh, Not a wall. People don't build wall fences, but okay. So let's let's move to uh, the supply chain. This has affected the entire world, and of course it's having dire effects on what's happening right here in the United States. I just talked to my wife who went shopping this weekend, and stuff's <laughs> in short supply. A lot of stuff is in short supply. So Short supply, go try to buy a car. You'll get delivery in, in three months if you're lucky. Uh, go try to rent a car. The rental car companies got rid of all of their 
cars because of COVID, and they want to buy new cars, and they can't get any new cars. Yeah. So prices of renting a car are very high, supply and demand. Look, it's a complicated story, but believe it or not, it all comes started in the area of shipping crates. So the world, of course, is very dependent on trade, and you know we've, we've moved in the last 30 years to just-in-time manufacturing, which means no company keeps large inventory of parts in place. They rely on the supply chain to bring them the parts they need when they need it. Mm-hmm. And the supply chain has been very, very efficient. It's able to, you know, you can computer, computer anticipate when you're going to need certain things. It knows whether to ship them by sea or by air. And generally speaking, it's worked very well for the last 20 or 30 years, leaving aside jobs lost or other issues. Right. But what happened in COVID was a very interesting thing which started this whole problem. Usually, um, containers go from to the United States, filled with consumer goods or whatever it might be. They then return from the United States to China, usually filled with agricultural products. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it you know, keeps on going back and forth. Container comes, container goes, pretty much it stays in balance. What happened with COVID? Suddenly, the whole world was ordering PPP supplies, in other words, masks and gowns and everything else, all made in China, being shipped all over the world to all sorts of places, uh, but it was a one-way shipment. Uh And when the containers got to wherever it might have been in Africa or different places in Asia or South America, there was no cargo to go the other way. So suddenly, um, cargo um, shipping containers were located in all sorts of the wrong places, and there started to be a worldwide shortage of shipping containers. Mm. And so with a shortage, what happens when there's a shortage? Prices go up. The prices of shipping have gone up as much as tenfold in the last uh, six months because there's a shortage. And, of course, um, not only is there a shortage, but you end up, we have a shortage now in the United States of truck, truck drivers. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the goods get to the, the ports, and there aren't enough truck drivers in order to drive the, drive the products from the ports to the targets and all the other stores that exist. Um, so the whole chain, which was built on on really just in time, getting everything done quickly, etc., totally out of whack. Uh, you have thousands of shipping containers in different places. You have ships waiting to, to, uh, to come ashore in ports because usually they wait a day or so and then they come ashore. Now they're waiting two weeks, so that means two weeks cargo is sitting at sea, not, not moving. Right. And, of course, as you can imagine, like any other traffic jam, it piles up all, all across the whole system. So, Mark, I, it just occurs to me, I, I thought I read that the uh, uh, cargo containers returned empty to China in some cases. This is not happening? Well, now it's happening very much so, because now because of the price, now because of the price difference, mm-hmm. they're sending back Chinese, they're sending the cargoes back empty as quick as they can, and what the consequences, as opposed to sending them to the Midwest to pick up farm product, they're not picking up the farm product because it doesn't pay because the, the cargo the cargo containers are so uh, valuable to make another shipment back to the United States. So they're going back empty to China, not waiting to pick up the, the you know soybeans and whatever else we we were selling in terms of agricultural product, and coming right back to China to turn around and come back to the United States. Interesting. So Which what's the solution? A new problem: farmers aren't able to sell their their soybeans because they have no way of shipping them. Hmm. So, so it's a complete, you know, and the, by the way, the same problem exists in, you know, in Europe. It's everywhere in the world right now. Right. Uh, so it's, it's one of those, it's, let's put it this way. We've made our whole economy so lean to ensure, um, you know, return on, you know, stockholder returns and the, the best for the stockholder and make it, don't, don't you dare tie up money in inventory and all sorts of things. Um, the result is that it's very, very susceptible to the, to any sort of uh, disruption. Here we've had yeah. the biggest worldwide disruption, certainly in our lifetime, no. other than World War, you know, other than wars. But you know, in our lifetimes, this is really the biggest disruption. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me that Walmart actually innov- had a lot of innovation with regard to uh, making sure that they did, they had just in time delivery of, of information or uh, product, as opposed to keeping it in storage, which saved them a lot of money. So this is coming back to and the, the whipsaw effect is, is beginning to, uh, uh, if without inventory on hand, then they are, they're running short of supplies and things to sell. So it's a, it's a big problem. 
No, it's all the way through. Look, the car manufacturers used to make many more cars, and they would go to the dealers, and they'd be in storage, and they would sell them slowly. But now they only make them based on the exact demands. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they don't, they don't order carburetors and hold, you know, 20000 in a warehouse. They get them in as they need them. Well, guess what? When they can't get them in as they need them, they can't, you know, make the carburetors. And then on top of everything else is a worldwide chip shortage. Yeah. And that's going to continue for a while because what ended up happening is the latest generation of chips can only be made in a few factories in the world, and they're working 100% output at this point. And it's going to take until new factories come online, and building chip factories takes two to three years. Yeah. So It's a mess. It's an interesting period. Yes, it is. Um, it's going to be very hard to understand what's going on in the economy at this point because these, these factors are influencing everything. Yeah. Mark, I really appreciate your shedding light on these issues. Uh, I learned a lot in, the, in our discussion today, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I remind our listeners, HistoryCentral.com is the website. Check it out. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performance, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app and find out more by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Peter Wood. He's the author of 1620, uh, a critical review uh, or response to the 1619 Project. He's also the author of a new book called Wrath. America Enraged. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He's the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We're headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and our focus is on high school and college students. Our purpose is to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, small government, and personal character. And we do that through the very uh, robust website we have, fee.org, online videos and other content, uh, fresh content every day of the week, and also in-person events all over the world. 
Fee.org is the website, and if you have a young person, high school or college age in your life, please do introduce them to this terrific organization. I've been to national conferences, and they do. <laughs> it's just amazing to see the energy of young people around freedom and individual responsibility. It's very, very inspiring indeed. Uh, so, Larry, you wrote a, a piece called uh, The Iron Fist in a Velvet Glove. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Well, I think it's been apparent for quite a while, Bob, that there are an awful lot of people who will do just about anything uh, in Washington and elsewhere to secure personal power. Uh, look at these uh, never-ending, partisan, vicious fights over uh, spending bills, you name it. Uh, they're stabbing each other in the back, and they're uh, lying about what's in the bills they propose. And you have to stand back and ask yourself, what is so all-important that they will engage in character assassination and all kinds of other shenanigans in order to get their way. And I think at the bottom of it all is a, a lust for power. There are people, and this is not new to us, it's not new to history, uh, but there are people who will uh, put pr uh, the uh, acquisition of power over uh, just about everything else in life. It is the most intoxicating uh, and nefarious motive that I can think of uh, throughout history, the desire to push people around, take their stuff, buy votes, get what you can at other people's expense, and, and just bully other people to uh, uh, you know, live their lives the way you think they should. Yeah, yeah uh, there's another side to it, though. Of course, the uh, fact is that most, in many cases, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Is, is They're doing it for our own good. I mean, Joe Biden has got this vaccine mandate. It's for our good, you know. <laughs> <It's> yeah, yeah. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, said that's the worst kind <laughs> of... Of power seeker, because you know if it's, if somebody's doing it just for money, well, you know you might be able to sideline them or satiate them in some way. But if they're doing it for your own good, they think they've got uh, the moral high ground, and that seems to justify just about anything they do to get uh, where they want to go. I mean, Lord Acton uh, said that uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, and this that goes back centuries. What can we do about this, Larry? I think it's a character problem. It certainly isn't something that, you know, government is, is, is going to fix uh, on its own initiative. The government is the problem, uh, and, and the uh, desire to get in charge of it and grow it uh, to feed your constituencies and your power lust, uh, that's the problem. Uh, so government is never going to uh, be able to... Uh, tell people, quit lusting for power. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so it's got to come from individuals, one person at a time. And everybody really, if you want to reform the world, uh, you've got to start by reforming yourself and teaching your uh, children the right values and uh, pointing out to them that politics uh, has, a, has a role in life, but it should be confined, it should be limited, it should be aimed at uh, matters that are for the good of all. Uh, it should be. Uh, uh, it should minimize the use of force, and otherwise leave people alone, so that politics isn't the center of life. Yeah, I, I suppose that uh, courage can be contagious, and when somebody steps up and actually and starts to behave that way, uh, other people can say that and see it and uh, say, "Well, maybe I should give that a try too," because lying and deceit and uh, all these dirty politics just don't work. I mean, it's just, it just turns off the American people. Yeah, it sure does. And the uh, personal example is still uh, extremely great, always has been. If you want to uh, reduce the, uh, all these uh, uh, troubles that relate to power lust, well, start with yourself. Stop mm -hmm. uh, supporting those politicians who uh, feed the mob uh, as a way to gain votes for themselves. Uh, and in your personal life, uh, behave in a way, speak in a way that suggests that uh, self-improvement uh, is the single best investment, uh, not, not, in, not in, uh, investment in the state and politicians who want to uh, dictate to others. Yeah. Be the champion you want to say. In other words, uh, if, if, it is, if it is to be, it's up to be kind of, kind of thing. And I think that's yeah. absolutely... Yeah, another way to put it is... Uh, uh, be the human that your dog thinks you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good one. You ended your column with some very interesting quotes from uh, Lord Acton. Uh, could you share a couple of them with us? 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is a uh, classic. Uh, he said, and this is about 150 years ago, he said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you super-add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There is no worse, uh, no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. So he was just saying, you know, so often we talk about great men and great women, and there certainly are such people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we we too often think that what makes them great is the power that they seek or the power that they wield, when in, f- in fact the truly great people are men and women of solid character. You know, Mark Twain once said uh, the definition of patriotism is supporting your country at all times and your government when it deserves it. I think that speaks volumes, doesn't it? And uh, Yes, it does, yeah, and, uh, and speaking truth to power when it doesn't deserve it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Again, please refer young people in your life to fee.org and check it out yourself. A lot of great information, fee.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Perry, uh, Peter Wood, author of Wrath, American Rage, that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months, finally having exhausted all alternatives for pain management. Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. I'm pleased to let you know that we have Peter Wood, author of Wrath, American Raged, uh, on the show this morning. He's also the president of the National Association of Scholars and author of uh, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Peter. So, uh, Wrath, American Raged, uh, why did you write the book? Well, I wrote the book um, after the... uh, election last year and after the riot in the Capitol, um, thinking that uh, the 
American population was being pushed awfully hard by the government, by the press, um, and that something was stirring in our souls by way of unhappiness with losing our liberties and having our constitutional rights suspended and seeing people demonized. Um, so I had written about anger in America 15 years ago, titled Be in the Mouth, Anger Now. My publisher thought it would be a good idea to bring that book up to date. So I started thinking this was just going to be a revision of the older book, but I soon realized that I had a completely different story to tell, and that's where the book came from. Oh, well, thank you for that. So how did anger come to dominate American politics? Well, uh, the answer is uh, first slowly and then very quickly. Mm -hmm. The uh, My thesis for a long time has been that Americans once were people who put a real high stake on self-control, self-government in the sense of being able to master your emotions and uh, make clear-headed decisions under stress. This was an ethic that was taught to children. It was um, the hallmark of American culture, being strong in the face of provocation. All that began to change after World War II. Mm -hmm. A couple sort of benchmark developments were the uh, importation into the country of Freudian psychoanalysis, which taught that uh, holding back your anger was going to lead to neurosis and bad mental health. We also got a dose of uh, French existentialism in which people started to believe that uh, the way to lead an authentic life was to uh, follow your anger and let it all out. Um, that caught on with the avant-garde in the 1950s, and it took a while for it to spread through the rest of the culture. But through the 60s, the let-it-all-hang-out generation, the rise of uh, popular resentments that sometimes took the form of expressive violence, we got this new thing going in which people took active pride in uh, unleashing their anger. And I don't think it started in politics, although there was a political part to it, uh, demonstrating against the Vietnam War and so on. But uh, it really caught on in entertainment, our, our movies, our, our books, our music especially, uh, took on an angry character. Eventually, it found its way into sports. Sportsmanship withered away as people learned that they could uh, cuss out the referees or throw their tennis rackets, and people would applaud that. Mm -hmm. So we had a form of anger going, which not only made people feel powerful and important, but which also got them a certain degree of prestige. The angrier you could get in public and perform it well, the more recognition you might get. Yeah. That began to move into politics in a big way in the 1990s when the press started writing stories about angry white men and uh, the characterization of conservatives became that they were uh, people who were just bottled up with rage and they were going to be nasty folks. Um, when George Bush II came, um, became president, the left just let it all out. Uh, there were important uh, journalists who would declare on air, I hate George Bush. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing like that had happened before. Uh, so I think we had in place by the early 2000s a very well-defined angry left, people who uh, took to spending their days and nights um, vituperating against uh, conservatives who just were people who reviled. Uh, the right, of course, has a capacity for anger as well, but it's complicated. It's not so much a dedicated lifestyle, or it wasn't, on, among conservatives, it was something that was conflicted. They felt like there were other things in their lives that pushed against getting angry, so getting angry became harder for them, or getting angry and staying angry. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that has changed with this last election and with the protests in the Capitol. 
Um, what changed about it was that uh, the legitimate avenues for expressing one's displeasure began to close off. Now, the 2020 election was, in my view, stolen in various ways. Mm -hmm. There was uh, malice of forethought with uh, extending the uh, absentee ballots in massive numbers to people, some of whom probably didn't exist, mm -hmm. some of whom were able to game the system to vote multiple times. But there was mischief in the way the votes were counted, uh, mischief in preventing poll watchers from seeing what was happening, the stopping of uh, the vote counts at a certain hour and then reopening them in the dark of the night. Um, most people who voted for Trump, at least 75 million who were acknowledged to have voted for Trump, look upon this with real dismay. Mm -hmm. But instead of proceeding through a orderly process of examining the allegations that something had gone wrong, they found themselves immediately uh, written off as liars and fools. Mm -hmm. uh, the court to deal with the issue, they just said nobody has any standing. Uh, the complaints that were well documented were ignored by the popular press. The left adopted the line that uh, the allegations of election fraud were completely phony and was just Trump lead misleading people. That stuff began to kind of choke people with their anger, as in, well, what do I do now? We mm -hmm. Normally, I'd call the sheriff if somebody was breaking into my house, but if I call the sheriff now, they laugh at me. Um, that, I think, is the recipe for what I call wrath. Wrath is this anger that has no legitimate place to go. It just boils over into a, a sense that I'm on my own, except for other people who see what I see, and none of us have the power to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, the arrest of people for minor transgressions on the uh, January 6th incursion into the Capitol, and they're being locked away, sometimes in solitary, now for 10 months, um, on stupid charges like trespassing, um, has further given us this sense that the current government is acting dictatorially. It's yep. inventing rules and imposing them and getting away with astonishing stuff. Our, you know, we'd go down the list of Afghanistan, the, the border, now our uh, inability to unload ships with yeah. merchandise that Americans need. Uh, Vaccine we are mandate. watching the COVID uh, imposition of uh, vaccination by thuggish techniques on the American people. Some resistance is coming into the picture. The, the high point of resistance for me is to watch uh, American parents showing up at school board uh. meetings and rightly protesting what's going on. Um, and that being called by our attorney general uh, a form of uh, domestic terrorism. I know. Uh, so you, you asked the question, how did it get into our politics? I said, slowly and then quickly. We're in the quickly part. Yeah, certainly are. This just such, I couldn't agree more, uh, Peter. I just, uh, I'm really looking forward to reading your book, uh, Wrath, uh, America Enraged. Uh, it just makes me wonder, the network, of course, was, a, I think, prescient movie. And uh, the, the media now just really feeds into the, uh, the anger and wrath as opposed to giving us news that's uh, balanced in, in a way that, that helps us to see what's going on in the world without prejudice. And I think that kind of stokes the whole process as well. Yes, um, I wrote about uh, Network, that uh, I think it's 1978 movie. That's uh, I'm mad as hell and yeah. aren't gonna take, not going to take it anymore uh, line. Well, we are mad as hell. Uh, whether we're going to take it or not, I guess, remains to be seen. Yeah. There's, uh, a feeling among some people that were verging towards a kind of violent resistance. Um, one purpose in writing the book is to see if I can find a way to channel the wrath in a more constructive way. Yeah. I really like those parents who are showing up in uh, school board meetings and pointing out what's going on. Um, 
that's that's the way to go with this. Absolutely. Again, Peter uh, Wood, again, the name of the book is Wrath, American Rage. It's uh, published by Encounter Books. Go to EncounterBooks.com. I'm sure it's available at all bookstores. And I'm just looking forward to read the book. I hope you'll join me again, Wrath. Uh, by Peter Wood. Peter, I just genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. I learned so much today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. All right, well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly had fun, learned a lot. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. We'll visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Boo Mortensen will be joining us. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and my wife, Linda, will be with us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>